0: Genesis 16, Uh, for a number of years, we as a church went to India and we drilled wells there. We built churches there. We did all kinds of things. And I led five trips over there. In the fourth trip, it was 2008. When I went over there, I took kind of a young crew. And when you go to India, what you do there is you um, go to villages and they are, India is a developing country. And then we'd go to the very least developed part of it. It's the southeast corner. It's Tamil Nadu. So very undeveloped, very, very, very remote. Um, It looks like you've stepped back a couple thousand years. You go to these villages. They're grass roofs, thatched roof uh, made with sticks that are then covered with a paste made of cow manure. So you didn't lean against the wall. So you're very careful about walls once you learn that information. Okay, I'll stay over here. And you would share the gospel and then you go to the next one. And we do like four or five a day. And then we'd end by being in one of these remote villages and showing some kind of movie at night. Uh, the movie would be like the Jesus film or it'd be a film made in India that just kind of tried to apply to what they were, their situation, gospel-centered. All right, so we go to this village and I'm with Jason Patton. If you don't know him, he's just a great guy. Uh, he was a high school pastor here for a long time. Super fun, always laughing. We, we just always, we're always going to have a good time with Jason. So I'm there with him, and we're told, like, go out, knock on doors, and then invite people to come to this movie. And they kind of gave us this little phrase in Tamil to invite them. So we kind of knew this little phrase. Okay, okay, that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll invite them. So we're, we're going out doing this, and it's pretty successful because. We're in the part of India where they rarely see white people. Some of them, the kids have never seen a white person. So it's like, what in the world is this white dude showing up at my door? He's inviting me to watch this movie. Okay, I'll go. That's pretty cool. It'd be like us, like having some kind of guru from India, all of a sudden show up at your house and be knocking on the door and like inviting you to do something. You'd be like, that's intriguing, what are you doing here? Are you smoking pot? I mean, what is the deal with you, man? It's weird. So it's like that, except we're not smoking pot. But uh, it was very intriguing to them. They're like, what in the world are you doing here? Let's go. So it was, it was positive, except for Jason Patton. He's like, I don't know, man. People were like giving me thumbs down and being like, no. And so they said, well, what were you saying? Well, it turns out that what he had memorized was not exactly what you should memorize because we were inviting people to come watch a movie called The Sins of the Fathers. Well, he got it wrong, and he was inviting people to come see a movie called The Sin of Your Dad. So it was, hey, come with the whole village. We have a movie about the sins of your dad. You'll love it. And they're like, no, I'm not going to that. In fact, I'm moving right now. How did you find out about my dad and his sins, right? <laughs> so we're in a chapter right now, chapter 16, that it's the sins Of this family. And it's a pretty brutal chapter. And the structure of Genesis is written to shape our mind in such a way. And this is one of the key things that to shape our mind. So if you've been following Abram, here's what's happened. He's growing. He's getting better, right? Genesis 12, he's called by God. He moves, but then he lies about his wife. You know, that's a big mistake. He says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. She's grabbed up into a harem of Pharaoh. It's a bummer. It's just not a good deal. God has to rescue him, but then he returns to where he's supposed to be. He then makes peace with his nephew, Lot, gives Lot the first choice, takes the leftovers. Lot gets sucked up into a battle, taken as a hostage. He grabs his crew. They go up and rescue Lot, Come back down. He's met by the king of Sodom. He says no to the king of Sodom and his junk, and he says yes to this intriguing guy called Melchizedek, who's both a king and a high priest. Chapter fifteen, he amens God. That's what it means to believe. There, he believed God. It's literally Hebrew. He amends Yahweh, and that was counted to him as righteousness. We did that last week, and then he kind of doubts. God. He's like, wait a second, God, I'm not sure about a couple of things. And so God says, no problem. And then they cut covenant. God cut covenant with him. Like this is brilliant. You read those first chapters and you're like, this guy is a stallion. He's CEO material, let's hire him right now. All right, that's supposed to be in your mind as you read chapter 16, because it's a reversal. It's a move here. Listen to this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's a massive problem. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. I bet he did. (laughs) One person laughs, that's it. Now they're like, why did I laugh? I wish I hadn't. (laughs) It's pretty funny. I mean, I agree with you, I laugh. (laughs) So after Abram... Had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. <laughs> dude, you can't win in this one, can you? (laughs) I gave my servant to your embrace. Any other translations to that? I looked at 10 translations of this Hebrew word, and there is not a translation that's brave enough to actually translate what Sarah says here. She does not say, it's very graphic. She doesn't say I gave her to your embrace. She literally says this, I put my servant between your legs. She's graphic here. It's, what's that supposed to tell you is this. Emotions are high right now. You ever had those emotional conversations with your spouse? Okay, that, that's why it's supposed to be translated that way. These are high emotions. So, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May Yahweh judge between you and me. What? It's your idea, sweetie. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly, literally afflict. It's the same word used in Exodus 1.11 of how the taskmasters deal with the, the slaves in Egypt. Brutal term. So Sarai afflicted her and she fled from little different, huh? A little different from the the developing hero we've seen the last four chapters. Now you have this like, oh my goodness, what a screwed up family, right? This could make a good movie. This is the sins of your father. We could make a movie about this. This is a reality TV show right here in Genesis 16. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to look at each of these characters and their sin and try to bring it actually to our time, because I think you can. And then I want to say, oh, okay, what's our hope then? What's our hope? Because most likely we can identify with one of these. So what's our hope? All right, so let's go. First, let's look at Sarai. So just to get you where Sarai was at, she knows her husband Abram was promised a child 10 years before this. So women have this clock that tells them every single month whether they're pregnant or not. So Sarai has gone through 10 years of this clock and this disappointment, 120 times. She had to say to Abram, not this month, not this month, not this month. And I know some women who have had to deal with that and it's very hard even today. But you backtrack this 4,000 years, oh, it's unbelievable. Because 4,000 years ago, what was the main purpose of a woman? A baby factory. Pop out some pups. I mean, give me some kids, right? That's what it was, okay? So we can, here's what, here's what happens when we read this story very often. We in the 21st century, we look at that and we kind of think, look how oppressive they were 4,000 years ago. Look how Hagar was just like used as this pawn. She can't even decide who she wants to marry. Like, we can look at that from the 21st century and be like, ha, that's terrible. That's oppressive. And there is parts of it that I say, yeah, there's oppressive to that. But I think 4,000 years ago, they would turn around, they'd kind of look at us and, and maybe they would say the same thing to us. You're oppressive. What do you mean, Matt? I'm not like Hagar, you know, where I'm forced to marry somebody. I can marry whoever I want. Really? Ladies, do you think you can marry whoever you want? You can't. You can marry whoever you can attract. Let's be honest. That's the culture we live in today. And so with that, I say there's a whole bunch of oppression on women today with that right there, because you better be fit and you better be healthy and you better be trendy and you better be cool and you better be Pinteresty, <laughs> Right? And your hair better be done 24-7, 365 because people are taking pictures all the time. And they might post one of you like, oh my goodness, I look horrible there, right? That's to me oppression. So I think they would rightly stand from their time and be like, no, that's an oppressive system. That's oppressive. So I think it's always important that you stand and look in the mirror before you ever point fingers at a different culture or different way of doing things. Because honestly... If you go to traditional cultures where it's still, hey, make babies, they don't struggle with eating disorders in those cultures. And there's been study after study done of that. But do we struggle with that in our culture? Oh, absolutely. Man, it's more prevalent than you can imagine. They don't have fads and and diet fads there. They don't have that. Why? Because it's, hey, make babies. Where ours is, be fit, be thin, be healthy, be trendy, be cool, be all this stuff, be hip. And with that comes oppression. Okay? So, yeah, Saren has barrenness in her culture. It's, oh, bad. We have modern barrenness if you're not these things. And it's starting to affect our culture. So I have an article uh, that I cut out and I like it because it agrees with my opinions. <laughs> so I always like articles like that. I'm like, yeah, I knew I was right. All right. <laughs> and I try to read things that are not just religious because I really want to know, okay, wh- what, what does our culture think right now? So I, this article is from Vogue magazine okay? Vogue is not a religious publication. Do you know that? It is a religion, no doubt about it, but it is not a religious publication, okay? If it does have religion in it, don't read it because it's wrong, okay? So listen to Vogue May 19th, nine days ago. Listen to what they said. Quote, it looked at 14 to 24-year-olds. Listen to what it says. They have found social networking sites and apps impact their mental health, including anxiety, anxiety, depression, self-identity, and body image, and found that Instagram has the most detrimental effect on young people, followed by Snapchat and Facebook. Instagram's signature photo filtering feature is one of the culprits, with young people, young women in particular, saying it causes them to see everyone else through rose-colored or Valencia-filtered glasses and to feel bad about their own lives and bodies as a result, negatively influencing their body image and sleep patterns, and of course, fueling pervasive senses of FOMO. Who here knows what FOMO is? I had to Google it. Fear of missing out. Oh, look at their life over there. Oh, they're having so much fun. Oh, I'm so depressed because my life doesn't look like that. That's what they're doing. This is Vogue magazine. This is not Christianity Today. This Vogue magazine, looking at data saying, oh my goodness, this is not healthy, okay? So Courts Magazine, May 22nd, has this. Quote, Instagram is the most harmful social network to your mental health. That's the article title. You can Google that if you want to. Interesting to me. So I read a book because I'm raising three daughters. And the book is this. It's written maybe seven years ago, but it was called this. And I'll give you a quote from it. Getting Real, Challenging the Sexualization of Girls. Here's a quote from it, quote, if no one is helping a girl to appreciate her inner qualities and she is bombarded with images of womanhood based merely on appearance, something unbalanced begins to happen. With no anchor, her sense of self becomes more and more external and visual, eventually leading to how she appears being everything then this leads to a shocking research that finds most girls today hate their own bodies, end quote. Dad, mom, you ever asked that question of your daughter? Do you hate your body? Young ladies, based on what you're seeing presented all the time, do you look at your body and hate it? So we can look in judgment on what we read in these verses but I think first we need to look at ourselves and say, what are we doing to young ladies? How are we oppressing them? Because of the same thing happening to them? And this thing came into my home just a week and a half ago. One of my daughters, she'll remain unmentioned, said, dad, what if when I get married, I have kids that are ugly? <laughs> she goes, I won't want them then. I said, no problem, give them to me. I've already got seven here. What's a couple more? I mean, just bring them on in. We'll just keep this thing going for eternity, all right? What's she saying? She's saying, listen, I don't know if I could post pictures of my family if they don't look like they've walked off an H&M catalog. I don't know if I can do that. Because she's now being immersed in a culture that is saying, do this, right? There's modern barrenness. There's modern barrenness. And it's just as oppressive as what you read here in chapter 16. Just different. We gotta be careful. So what does Sarah I do? She's barren. What does she do? Look at verse six. She beats up the competition. Does that happen today? Oh my goodness. Oh my, I live with four girls, okay? And I hear these little things Sometimes. And I'm constantly saying to my daughters, don't you talk about that way. Don't you mention that about her. She is a young lady trying to figure out life just like you are. Are you kidding me? Where's your compassion and empathy? I cut it off because I know this. What can begin to happen is there is this kind of gossipy slander, and it's like you take hits on these girls. Oh, can you believe that dress she wore? Can you believe the hair color she chose? Oh, can you believe what she did to her eyebrows? I cannot believe that. That's horrible. What are we doing? We're tearing down the competition. And it's not helpful. It's not loving. It's not kind. Right? That's what she does. It's exactly what happens today. So we can think, oh, this is an ancient story. (laughs) No way. People are people. And these same things happen today. And when you bow to the altar of significance from culture, it is a terrible master. And it will lead you just like this. You'll start just cutting on other people. Don't bow to that altar. So Sarai does, gets mad, and starts to cut in Hagar. All right, so that's the first one. Second, Hagar. Verse 4 says this about her She conceives, and when she does, look what she does. She looked with contempt on her mistress. Here's what happens now Hagar's like, I got it. Our culture defines the, a woman as someone that can produce babies. I can produce babies. You can't. Ha! She begins to look down her nose at Sarai because she's barren and I'm not because of her unbarrenness. Be careful of allowing culture to define what's it because when you do, you're always aiming at a moving target. I'll give you one example. Just 12, 13 years ago, you can Google if you want to. The ideal woman's body was a paper-thin model. Remember that? France actually, um, what did someone say? Yes, Twiggies. France actually outlawed them. They said, you have to be this size or bigger, or you can't be a model anymore, because it was getting so crazy, right? So that was just 15 years ago. Then enter the Kardashian clan. How has that thing swung now, right? It's the voluptuous person now. Well, if you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to be, man, you're gonna be all over the place, You don't allow allow culture to define body. Man, you can't do that. It's crazy. You will just run yourself ragged. So she has it and she begins to have contempt for Sarai who does not have it, okay? So let me read a quick text in the New Testament that I think informs us on this idea and then try to get the misunderstanding out of it. The text it's found in 1 Timothy chapter two. Listen to what this says. It says this to women. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty Oh, no, the M-word And self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, but what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. I love that text. Don't we know by all this outward stuff? Be known by what you do, (laughs) which is the rallying cry of feminism for years. Here's what some churches do. They grab those four things, right? Don't be known, don't have braided hair, wear gold, pearls, or costly array. And so they make that like the rule for today. So if a woman comes into one of those church with braided hair, everyone's like, she must be a hooker. She's got braided hair. That's unbelievable. I mean, the Bible says no braided hair. Listen, here's a Bible lesson. You always have to see what that text meant to its original hearers before you ever try to see what it means for you, okay? So 2,000 years ago, those four things, braided hair, gold, pearls, costly array, what that told people was this, I've got it, I've arrived, I have beauty, I have power, and I have privilege, and now I am flaunting it. I'm making sure you know that I've got it. I'm making sure you know I'm beautiful, I'm powerful, I am rich, I'm shoving it in your face, I'm putting you in your place. That was a way of doing that. And so Paul's like, not in the church, not in the church. We don't do that, okay? So, so that's what it's saying right there. We have to be very careful of that because I think the same thing can happen today right? There is this, the, the, the core problem in that text is this. It's self-promotion. Let me promote myself. That I have to be whatever it is. Today, it's, I have to be the trendiest. I have to be the coolest. I have to be the most stylish. I have to be the thinnest. I have to be the healthiest, right? And I say this, um, even there can be a competition on being the most modest, right? Depending on the crew you run with, you can actually compete on being the most modest, Look at my bonnet. I bought it from an Amish grandma in Indiana. That ain't nothing. Look at my dress. I made it from a Mervyn's curtain I bought from Goodwill. I'm better than you, right? There can be, you can compete on any of these things. It's not about what you're wearing. It's about the heart behind it. Is it self-promotion? Is it look at me? Is it make much of me? That's the issue in First Timothy. That's the issue right here. She has contempt because she has it and she knows Sarai does not have it and is a terrible master. When you can have contempt because it always leads to competition. The believer is to live like this, Philippians 2 tells us. Paul says, rough translation, if you can do one thing that will make me happy, do this. Don't live for vain glory, literally empty doxa. Don't live for this glory-hungry, self-promotion, self-evaluation thing because you will never be able to satisfy yourself. Instead, instead, Look on the needs of others. Think about what's best for them. Put on the mind of Jesus, who, being one with God, thought it not robbery to be God, left that, left heaven, set it aside, became a servant, and died for us. That's the way life is to be lived. So there's a danger right here that Hagar has. Her sin is this contempt that leads to competition and divides these two apart. Probably they were good friends before this. They've been together a long time, 10 years probably. This divides that friendship and destroys it. Contempt and competition will destroy your friendships. So that's Hagar. Thirdly, we come to Abram. Now, I just want to see if you can, I'm going to try to tease this out, see if you can figure it out. But look at this. This is a fascinating, I mean, it's, it's Wednesday we'll be able to do more work on this, but it's fascinating to me. Listen to Abram. Okay, verse two. Sarah said to Abram, be in hold now, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. In your mind, as you've read Genesis, and as we study this, does your mind remember another story where a wife told her husband to do something and listen to her? Okay, that's supposed to be shaping us. It's, it's, it's going back to Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve, the same situation, eats of the fruit, and it does not end well, okay? So culturally, listen to me. Culturally, 4,000 years ago, what they're doing right here is perfect. Everyone did it. It was not a problem. So she would be considered almost a surrogate mom of of kinds, right? This is a way of having a surrogate mom. And culturally, man, you could totally do that. But I still think it's wrong. Nowhere in here does it say Abram built an altar and called on the name of Yahweh. He just, okay, let's do that. See, you and I, Abram, was supposed to live countercultural. He's supposed to rise above it. Just because culture says something is okay does not make it okay, right? I don't get my morality from America or from our government, right? The government says you can do things that I find immoral. The government says it's no problem in the third trimester to terminate a pregnancy. I think that is appalling. I know there are, there, there, there's problems, there's issues. There's, I, I understand all that. But I say like Mother Teresa, just give me the baby. That, that is wrong. So I don't allow the government to tell me what is right or wrong. I allow God's revelation to tell me what is right or wrong, right? So they're supposed to rise above this. They don't. They, they, they fall into this. So then verse five, I think really unlocks for us what's happening. Because look at verse five. It doesn't make sense. And whenever you see a verse that does not make sense in the narrative, it's telling you something. So look at verse five. It says this, Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Is that crazy? Like Abram's like, huh? It was your idea, sweetie. Now you're blaming me, really? And he gets, she gets, even goes further, right? She goes, may Yahweh judge between you and between me. Why is Sarai so ticked at Abram here for something that appears to be her idea? Here's what I think. I think Sarai actually wanted her husband Abram to fight for her. She wanted Abram to say, no, we will trust God. No, you will be the mother of my son. No, we're not doing that. And he doesn't. And that's why she's so mad. Do you know that people play games you can get mad at that, hell oh, yeah. You can get mad at that if you want to and be like, it's wrong, it is, but it still doesn't matter. People play games. Spouses play games. And so you, if something seems funny and seems out of line, it probably is. You should stop and pray and get counsel and think about it. Abram does not do that. And now Sarai actually blames him. It's your fault I'm in this mess. It's you, right? And then look at this. Look very clearly, verse three says, Hagar is Abram's wife. It doesn't say servant, wife. Now this is polygamy. The Bible never condones polygamy. It records when it happens, but God's design has always been Genesis 2, one man, one woman, one life. So what happens here, and we'll see it's a massive, massive mistake, and it's just recording it. But she is called his wife. But look at how he looks. Look at what he says, verse six. Behold, your servant is in your power, due to her as you please. What's Abram's sin? He's passive. He's 100% passive in the story. So it's, it's a stark contrast to what we've seen. Chapter thir- 13, I'm returning to where I belong. Lot and I are having these dis- this absolute quarrel. It's gotta stop. I'm gonna make peace. I'll choose the worst land, give him the best land. Chapter 14, he gets taken, I'll rescue him. Chapter 15, I amen God. I wrestle with him about what I do. You just see this decisive, incredible character being developed and all of a sudden, what? He's so passive. He's so passive here. I know men just like this. That man at the workplace, they are hitting it. In things that they love, hobbies, man, they're hitting it. But in their home life, in their marriage, they're passive. It's like they just fold their hands and say, well, whatever. I'm like, what? Dude, you hit it over here and you hit it here. What? what, Why not in your home? It's just like Abram. It's fascinating to me. It's sad to me. And here's what I think. And I'm going to push on some things that probably are not politically correct, but I'm okay with that. Here's what I think. I think men want authority without responsibility. They want the authority to do what they want, but they don't want the responsibility for the outfall of what will happen. They want the authority to take all the money and buy a ski boat, but they don't want the responsibility to pay the rent. Like that's there's a little seed of that in every man. And if it's not stamped out, it will grow and ruin you. And I think that little seed, it came from our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, because when he's busted in his scene on Genesis chapter three, and he eats of the fruit... And God says, bro, why did you eat of that fruit? What does Adam say? Man, I'm so sorry. I blew it. Forgive me. I made a mistake. Own up to it. Repent. Does he do that? No, what does he do? It's the woman you gave me. Most brilliant sentence ever formed by a man. He blames his wife and God in four words. I mean, you're just like, whoa, dude, that was amazing. I can't believe you were able to pack that in. And from that point, men have Fall into that same trap. What, what Abram's saying here in verse six is, it's your problem. You do what you want. I don't care. I'm going to stand here. That's his wife and it's the mother of his son. And he's like, do whatever you want. Arms folded. Passive. That's his sin. And it's, it's a massive problem to me. All this drama of chapter 16 happens because of his passivity, really right? You've got Hagar running away with his son. You've got Sarai just ticked at him. And I believe the Bible says this about husbands. It says that we are to be the nail-pierced servant leaders of our wives. It's Genesis, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20 through 32. And that's not politically correct today, but I believe it actually leads to the right kind of marriage. Here's what I mean we are to be those that at the end of the day, the buck stops with us. Okay. Well, oh, Matt, what does that mean? I'm a wife. Does that mean I have to do whatever my husband says? Yes. Let's pray and go. <laughs> my job is done here. No. Okay. Adam, when he's alone in the garden, God looks at him and God says, it's not good that Adam is alone. Let me make a helper for him. Why would God say that? It's really simple. Because men need help, right? That's why. That's not good. He needs help. Okay? Being a helper is not derogatory. God, the same word for help is used for God, that God is our helper. It's not derogatory. It's saying, this thing's not going to work out when he's by himself like that. Okay? So there's supposed to be this this beautiful balance. So let me give you like decisions because you see a matrix of decisions here in chapter 16 that tank this relationship, tank this family. So when it comes to decisions, here's what I tell men. Never be a control freak. The Bible does not say you get to control your wife. It never says that. So there is a balance that's supposed to be where we are looking and talking and praying. And I tell men this, lose as often as you can. Every, every decision that does not matter, men just say, what do you think? You do it. I don't, yeah, it's fine. All right. So my wife wanted to repaint our bathroom for the third time. And she's like, what color should I do it? I said, I don't care, man. Whatever color you want to paint it. Cause I'm not, never in there. You're in there way more than me. So it's fine. <laughs> All right? Our garage. I think a garage should be a man's place. Amen. Yes keep them out there. It should be raw drywall where you can see like the tape marks on it, where it smells like diesel and gasoline. Like, yeah. Well, my wife does not think that. So our garage is a sunny farmhouse yellow and smells like vanilla bean. And I'm okay with it. All right. That's it. All right? Cause I don't care. If you're a control freak and dominating your wife, they have the right to be like, this is wrong. That's not it at all. So when we make decisions, my wife and I, we talk and we discuss it and we'll pray about it. We'll get outside counsel sometimes. And 99 out of a hundred times, it's like, okay, we agree hundred percent. All right, let's do that. The one time we disagree, that's where it gets tough. And here's what Charity did to me when we were first married, when we first got married, and it was the best thing that's ever happened to me in my marriage. She pressed me into what I'm supposed to be as a man because I grew up without a dad. So I'm like, mm, I'm trying to figure this thing out. So there was this major decision we need to make. Life-changing, what do we do here? And we discussed and we prayed and there was no like, hey, this is, there was no burning bush. There was no voice from heaven from God. I wish there was, I prayed that there was. There was none of that. I'm like, oh, please, nope. It was, it's up to you two. You guys figure it out, you wrestle this thing out. So there was none of that. And so this is what I said to Charity. I said, okay, fine if you don't want me to do this, then I won't do it. This is what Charity said to me. She said, you don't do that to me. You make the call, you be a man, and you live with the repercussions, good or bad. I went, whoa, all right. Um, let's see here. Uh. Here's what she was doing, and it's so right. She's saying, you're putting this back on me. And six months down the road, when you don't like life, guess who you will blame? Me. You don't do that to me. You make the decision, right? And men do that all the time. They defer passively and then they get aggressive six months later. I knew it. I knew we should have bought that house. Then why didn't you do it? I knew I should have taken that job. Then why didn't you do it? I knew I shouldn't have done that. Then why did you? Right? It's a way then that a man can then shirk his responsibility and his inadequacies and have a scapegoat the whole time he lives life like he wants to. And it's wrong. And so God says, I'm not letting my daughters live in that kind of a marriage. You stand up, you be a man, you make the call and difficult decisions, and then you live with the repercussions. That's what it means. And when it's lived out like that, women are protected. You don't end up with a verse six, Okay. So here you have this mess. It's just a mess. Chapter 16. It's a mess. You have a family that's just, it's ganked up. Sarah's mad, calling down judgment on her husband, blaming him. Hagar, the mother of Abram's son, is running back to Egypt. Abram is out in his garage, tinkering with his 450 quad. Well, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to sit out here and mess with my quad, right? That's what he's doing. And you're like, ah, this is terrible. But look at what happens in the story. Look at what our hope is. Look at verse seven. The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar... "'Servant of Sarai, where have you come from? "'And where are you going?' "'And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai.' "'The angel of Yahweh said to her, "'Return to your mistress and submit to her.' "'And the angel of Yahweh said to her also, "'I will surely multiply your offspring "'so that they cannot be numbered for multitude.' "'And the angel of Yahweh said to her, "'Behold, you are pregnant,' And you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, verse 13, she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. How brilliant is that? How brilliant is that? You have this family that cannot rise above their culture. They keep doing the junk that the culture does, right? You have a a family that's really brutal to each other, a wife calling down God's judgment on her husband, blame, passivity, You know, a pawn in the middle that's just being bounced around. They can't get above their own self-centered desires. You got a really messed up family. And what does God do? He comes back to them time and time and time again. God does not give up on them. God keeps working on them. God restores this situation right here, comes, intervenes in it. And so Hagar says, You are a God of seeing because you are looking after me. That's our hope. Do you know that? Because there are so many things when you add up what you cannot control. If you really thought about it, you'd go insane. And our hope as believers is there's a God who sees. And he's looking out for me. That's my hope. That's my only hope. And I think if we each thought long enough, we could say, I'm a Sarai, or I'm a Hagar, or I'm an Abram, or I'm all three. I'm really messed up. We could all find ourselves in one of these characters. And you sit there and say, well, what's my hope? Maybe you feel like Sarai, Baron, whatever this world says It is, whatever your culture is saying, it is, you feel like I don't have it, I don't fit. What's your hope? Maybe you feel like Hagar, a pawn in other people's games. People are making all these decisions, and I just get ping ponged around in it. Maybe you feel like Abram, just passive. It just feels like you step back in life and you just watch it happen in front of you with your arms crossed, and you're always wondering, what just happened? Maybe you feel passive. What's your hope? What's your hope? Your hope is there's a God who sees and there's a God who looks out for me, right? So if, if you're in, in a, an oppressive situation, a bad marriage, terrible work environment, you feel like you're under the thumb of somebody, a pawn, what's your hope? God sees. God sees what's going on. God knows and he will look after you. Like there's a lot of things, like I just don't un- understand it. I don't understand why ISIS is still around. I don't understand what's happening in Syria right now. I don't he- understand how today, The Coptic Christians in in Egypt, probably there was another slaughter that happened there. I don't get that. Like, God, why? But you know what? I know God sees and God's looking out for me. I know that. That's my hope right there. Hagar, I'm looking out for you. The son you're going to have, verse 10. In fact, he's going to be the father of a multitude. No way, really? Yes. There's this promise embedded in this. We have the same promise. Do you know that? It's Romans 8:28. For we know that all things work together for good, to those that love God. Do you love God? and are called according to His purpose. Do you want His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Yes. We know all things work together for good. To those that love God and are called according to His purpose. We know that. right How about? Sarai? She's barren. Her life is transformed in chapter 17. She is renamed. Her name literally means mother of kings. How cool is that? You just want a kid because there's this barrenness in you. I'm going to give you a king. Now unto him that's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all I could ask or think. How about Abram? His passivity. Read chapter 18 where he bargains with God. Chapter 22, we'll get there. Unbelievable, Chapter 26, where it says he kept covenant. It's a movement. He's changed. He's being remolded. He's being reshaped, no doubt about it. But it's the God who sees that we trust. This book is trying to shape us so that we begin to think biblically. And so Wednesday night, here's what I said. It's one of my favorite sayings. I wrote it down when I heard it. It's this. God works the night shift. God works the In verses one through six, when it seems so dark and your marriage is ganked up and there's all kinds of problems and there's hatred and there's arguing, guess what? God's still at work. God works the night shift. And that's where we get verses seven through 13, because God's still at work. That's my hope. In dark times, in difficulties, in mistakes I've made, guess what I hope in? The God who sees, the God who looks out for me the God who continues to work the night shift, that he is the only one that can literally wring from evil, good, Genesis 50, 20. That's the God that I hope in. That's my God. And this book is trying to shape us so that we put our trust in him, right? God works the night shift. The best example is what we do every Sunday. The darkest day in history, literally the sun went out when Jesus was crucified. But it leads to The greatest day ever, Easter, when God defeated death and sin and the law and began the renewal of all things. The darkest day becomes the greatest work God does because God works the night shift. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're a Hagar or if you're a Abram or if you're a Sarai. When you eat and when you drink, say, Jesus, I want my hope to be in you. I want my definition of what it is to be defined by you, by the gospel, no longer by a culture that's this moving target. That's how we become whole. That's what we look for. So eat and drink strength. Eat and drink hope that God sees and He looks out for us. So, Jesus, you are good. thank you that in my life you have worked in the darkest days and that gives me hope. I pray for any in here who feel like their family is Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Their marriage is hopeless. Husbands who are passive Wives that play games, that cause issues. I pray that there would be a renewed hope in you, that you see, that you look after. And if we will yield ourselves like clay on your wheel, you will remake us and reform us into the image of your son. Romans 8, 29. That's our hope, to be conformed to the image of your son. So I pray this day for power, for us to eat strength, for us to eat forgiveness, that we would know that you continue to come back to broken, messed up people like Abram and Sarai and Hagar. And if you continue to do that, you'll do that for me, for each of us. So may our hope be in you, I pray. And I ask this in your name. Amen.